Howdy. It's another fight site prediction panel. Last time we did was uh, Figueredo Perez. I thought that went very well. And half of us were right and half of us were wrong. And the correct, no, three, three of us were right. The correct people are here. Danny Martin, the coward, is not here. Um, the one who picked Perez and ran. And uh, yeah, we're, we're here to laugh in his face at the whole podcast. Actually, though, we're going to talk about uh, Charles Oliveira versus Tony Ferguson for the most part. That is the co-main event, I believe, of UFC 256, which is this Saturday. Uh, main event is uh, Davis and Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno. Quick turnaround. Uh, we just talked about him. We will touch on that fight probably after we're done our big breakdown on Oliveira and Ferguson. And we might also talk a little bit about Hanato Moicano versus Rafael Faziev. Um I do that with Russians, too. I, I keep doing the H on their names. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about it. And I'm joined by uh, Sriram Raleigh Darin, who is one of our MMA analysts and uh, also does some work on betting. And I believe he also writes for the Body Lock still. Do you still write for the Body Lock? Uh, technically. <laughs> that's, that's you. And then we have uh, Ben Cohn, who is our interviewer extraordinaire and also a grappling analyst. Uh, and a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, and he uh, he does cool moves, and we love him. Hello, Ben. Hello. Love you, too. And uh, <laughs> returning after his triumphant debut last time is Dan Tom, who is a longtime MMA analyst, who is a very excellent uh, writer and technical understander and trains a lot and has trained a long time with uh, with a lot of pros out west. And uh, he's also very, very handsome, and he writes for MMA Junkie. Hello, Dan. Too kind. Good to good to be back and uh, talk with you guys. You gotta get your your morale up to get the energy good for the uh, for the podcast. But yeah, uh, the the format for this discussion is like a, a round a roundtable panel. So every person is going to get a chance to discuss uh, each part of our topic. And the way we're going to do it is we're gonna break down each fighter individually. And then we're going to talk about the matchup dynamics and make our predictions. And uh, luckily, some of us have already done our staff picks article. Therefore, we have our <laughs> the things we want to say planned out. And some of us are just going to be flying, flying by the seat of their pants. And those people are bent. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but yeah, the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, Tony Ferguson versus Charles Oliveira. Um, awesome fight at lightweight that a lot of people are excited about. Uh, two guys known for their grappling, uh, and Oliveira, as of late, also known for his pressure striking, which is what Tony Ferguson's become famous for, I would say. Uh, the super high pace, uh, moving forward, elbows, straight kicks, all that all that jazz, and just his personality, his training videos, people love Tony Ferguson. He, uh, he had his crazy win streak snapped by Justin Gaethje in what was a pretty wild fight to watch. He took a lot of damage, and this will be his first fight back, so we're hoping for a... Uh, a fresh, a fresh face, Tony. I think he's rocking the bald look now. Finally said goodbye to the hair. Um, and Oliveira is, is doing the blonde, the bleach blonde look. So a uh, very aesthetic fight. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Sharon doesn't like it. Uh, so to start off our discussion, we're going to have Dan Tom give us his general breakdown on Charles, uh, on Tony Ferguson, rather. We're going to start with Tony Ferguson. General breakdown on Tony Ferguson, you know, strengths, weaknesses, overall game, just what are your reads on Tony, especially at this point in his career. Yeah, man, you said it at this point in his career, bald Tony, you know, maybe uh, maybe it's recency bias that runs so strong, but I was over on his Instagram checking out his new look. 
um, looking at some of his trading videos, not so much for the trading videos, but more just to see how guys are moving, you know, whether they're getting older or we haven't seen them in a while. Um, I, I want to see how they're moving and how their gait. I remember, I think it was like before UFC 200, we hadn't seen Brock Lesnar for a while. And like, I don't follow wrestling, but I remember like asking someone for their WWE, you know, the streaming service passcode. And they're like, why, why do you want to watch a wrestling match? I'm like, it's not going to tell me anything about the fight, but I just want to see how this guy's moving, you know, because sometimes you just want to see what a guy's gait looks like, you know, or lack thereof a walking gait. If we're talking about the Dan Kellys of the world, y'all remember him. I always love those guys. Right. Um, but Ferguson, yeah, he does wild things and he puts his body through, through wild things. Maybe it's the, the bald look that Ed was talking about, but you know, you do wonder, it may, you know, uh, where are those level changes, you know, going, you see him doing it in his, you know, Instagram videos and they almost look a little slower. Um, you know, there is corners asking him to throw sand, which is one of the more funnier talking points and takeaways from that USC 249 fight opposite Justin Gaethje. And I, I'm not going to pretend to even speculate what the heck that was, but I, I guess if there was a gun to my head, I would say, I, I'm assuming it's a level changing feint because he should have been, or at least threatening the level changing at the very least in that fight, which he really didn't do till it was too late and his body was too broken down. Right. But is his body kind of more broken down in general? I guess I'll let, you know, the fight answer that I'll let you guys weigh in on that. But as far as just Tony's general game, um, I'm a big fan of it. Uh, whether people are a fan of Tony's or not, it's a hard game to understand. And I'm not going to pretend to know a fighter better, uh, a style better than they know it. Of course, they know it the best. And even if you were to agree with Tony Ferguson, um, you don't need to have interviewed him for this. Uh, uh, but I I've interviewed him a couple times before. It's not a great interview. Um, you could be like, I agree with you, Tony. The sky is blue. And he will find a way to argue with you, to demean you, uh, <laughs> to prove you wrong. Um, so that alone, just trying to get a beat or liking a guy for his personality or trying to guess what Tony Ferguson's going to do in a fight can almost be problematic. But what I, I can stand by as far as analysis goes is Tony likes to play the long game. You know, um, some of my favorite fighters um, from like old school Noguera and Pride to Damian Maya, um, a lot of these guys do kind of like an archetype that I like to call like the, the presenting. Um, they're presenting something false because they're playing for the longer game. You know, Noguera lets Tim Sylvia up. He gives him the underhook escape because he wants the guillotine, which we actually have seen Charles Oliveira fall victim to. Um, you know, Damian Maya, he's fallen to his back in half guard. It looks like he's rocked. It looks like he's relinquishing position. But no, he just wants that single leg get up and he's going to get to a nice leverage position where his old man's strength is going to count for something. Um, so they're playing the long game with Tony. He does the most dangerous way. So for people to not support it, follow it, understand, I, I don't blame them. I'm not, it's not some crystal ball I'm offering you guys here. I just want to point out that he does play for the long game, not just, you know, I'm going to tire a guy out by either me effectively striking him or him effectively striking me and me being able to overtake it and, you know, persevere a uh, long end. But even more technical ways in shorter form, you see it with Lando Venata, right? He goes for the guillotine knowing that Lando's going to hand fight. And when you hand fight, you're going to inherently leave some space behind your triceps, uh, behind your triceps and your traps there where he can slide in for the darsing arm for his specialty. Um, and as we, you know, as we've seen, which I'll say for the Oliveira pers uh, portion, you know, it's a dual mirrored weapon that can be dangerous and successful depending on who's applying it where, right? And Tony Ferguson can kind of have these trappings even within his game, plus play that long attritional game that I think we all kind of understand, right? Um, it's very dangerous. It's going to run out sometime. You could argue that he's already burnt himself out. I know I've had 
talks with uh, many of you guys on podcasts on and off the record before that he's clearly out of his prime. Um, it's just more of a question, you know, I don't think he's shot, but it's more of a question of where is he from prime to being shot? You know, where does Tony fall? I think we're going to argue that on this show. Um, but I would argue that even when Tony was in his prime, he was drawing just as many questions, uh, even though he was emphatically answering it each time, because again, something to keep in mind, whether you're a fan or not, he does play for the long game. Wow. That was a beautiful breakdown, Dan. That was very thematic um, and very philosophical about, about Tony, too. I didn't know you'd interview him. I didn't know he was like that. That's even funnier. Uh, he's such a wild card. Uh, but yeah, my, my piece on Tony Ferguson, you know, I, uh, I spent a long time not really appreciating him. I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, and I, I've been underrating him for a long time. I recorded my podcast uh, about this fight today, about Tony, actually, specifically, uh, if anyone noticed, I, I posted a video of, uh, of some of just the wrestling exchanges that have happened in his fights uh, today. I was just looking through them before, and I, I started seeing them. I'm like, these are all, this is really good stuff. And then I made the little video because I was really impressed. Uh, but I don't know why I was underselling him as a wrestler so much. I knew that, that he was a high school state champion. I knew that he was a, a junior, not a junior college, but a club college uh, national champion. So I knew he had a background and that he started as a wrestler. I just thought once he got his striking game going, he kind of abandoned it. He really didn't. Um, his fundamentals have always been there. Uh, he, he's a very technical wrestler, so that's what I appreciate about him. Appreciate about him. Obviously, the snapdowns are, are a big part of uh, the wrestling carryover. Uh, I mean, he, he's very excellent with that technique. Gets a strong grip and front headlock, and you know, crashes his entire body weight down, gets his hips back. Um, you know, wrestling coaches will teach you: you should do it like you're sprawling. Um, you should sprawl back as hard as you can and hit that snap. If they don't go down, just keep doing it. Uh, he's pretty much always successful in the first one because he's an animal. Uh, the lanky frame, I think, throws people off. They think he might not be so strong and that it's all like a volume, a danger type of thing. He seems very strong to me uh, in all these exchanges that I'm looking at. Uh, like his hips are like super hard to get a hold of. He's really good at hiding his hips too and like blading them, uh, especially off the whizzer. Uh, super persistent hand fighter. Um, yeah, it's really great defense. And then his offense is actually there as well. He's got some body lock misdirection. Uh, takedowns. Uh, he hit a nice like bouncing off the cage single leg on Eve Edwards. Um, he, he's got he's got a game. He's definitely got a game as a wrestler, and it never really left. Um, the only times he was taken down clean were against like really powerful explosive wrestlers who could intercept him, uh, crashing forward all the time. But for a guy that crashes forward all the time, he was taken down surprisingly little. Um, I was very impressed by that, and that definitely influences how I view this matchup, which I won't talk about yet. But uh, yeah, just the, the being an animal physically, the technical wrestling, um, it, really, it really ties this game together. Uh, people talk about the Danny Castillo fight a lot. Like in the, in the lead up to when we thought he was going to fight Khabib, people were like, oh, you know, he's going to go to his back. He can't just stop the takedown. Every time he went to his back against Danny Castillo, he had stopped the takedown first. He defended the takedown and was in a good position, and then he went to his back. <laughs> I thought that was a very interesting, but we're not breaking down Khabib fight, but I just like that was so silly to, to see. Um, yeah, his striking game, I understand a lot less. Um, it's, it's always looked weird to me, especially later in his career when he was a little less fluid with his motion because we I think he is post-prime physically at this point. Um, maybe the strength is still there, but just, you know, some of the fluidity in his movement, some of the speed, some of the reaction time, it looks a little jankier than it used to. It always looked janky, but there was more energy behind everything, if that makes sense. Uh, pace is still high. He still seems to, to hit fairly hard. Um, drop Justin Gaethje, um, which is uh, an achievement for sure. Uh, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of long weapons. 
Uh, he has that that uh, snap kick with his lead leg that he skips into. Um, good jab. Uh, you know, weaves off his strikes well. It isn't really committed to any sort of stance, so he can cover distance pretty uh, freely, which you know leaves him exposed. But it gets him in a good position to attack with elbows and all that. Um, but yeah, good clinch fighter. I, I, I respect him a lot more than I used to. Um, I just, I'm hoping that it's not too late for me to respect him and that he's just going to fall off completely now and not get any new performances uh, to admire him in or root for him in. Uh, so I'm super late to the Tony party, but I, I like him a lot. I, I like his game. And this isn't even to mention what he does on the ground, which uh, I'm not going to talk about because I think there are more qualified people to do it. And I've taken enough time. I'm going to pass it along to, to Sriram talk about Tony Ferguson. Uh, yeah, I mean, Tony Ferguson's a, a fight. I think there are a lot of parentheticals that have kind of gone unnoticed after that Gaethje fight, namely the whole thing about how he thought there were people in his walls at one time, which was very, very concerning to me. Uh, the whole, basically how he's been treated like Leon Edwards or Rafael Assuncao and the way that he just been extended over and over and over against different contenders, which could contribute, it definitely contributed to why he's probably a bit past prime now. Um, and that's, even more surprising considering how much of a reputation he has for being such an exciting forward moving fighter that doesn't tend to happen to people. Like the last one I can remember is like Eliseo Zaleski dos Santos, which is just the nature of welterweight. Uh, but Tony Ferguson's always been a fan favorite for good reason. I think the, the thing about him is that, and this is something that uh, we did a podcast on Tony Ferguson before the Gaethje fight with our good friend Haxerized, uh, who had a lot of different ways to explain it as he does. Uh, and I think the thing about Tony Ferguson is that he's built his game from the ground up and that has a lot of benefits and a lot of drawbacks. Because if you look at the philosophy behind his game, it's very, very sound, in my opinion. Uh, it's not it's no different than, you know, any kind of volume striker, but he's very good at uh, hitting the body. He pushes a pace very hard with his jab. Uh, he's able to draw a reaction and punish them. It's just in a very weird way. Like if someone um, draws a counter with the jab, they can punish it with like a left hook or a right hand. He punched it with a spinning elbow, which he did against Cowboy Cerrone several times, which was, uh, it's it's, it's sound philosophically, it's weird technically. And that, that kind of covers a lot of what Tony Ferguson does. The issue with that is that lack of technical soundness in terms of individual exchanges, it will get him punished. And it has gotten him punished in like his two of his last three fights at least. Uh, Donald Cerrone was just uh, general weirdness. But uh, why I favored him so hard against Gaethje was that he got punished moving forward against Anthony Pettis, who's a pretty limited counterpuncher. But you know, Tony did his like little run up uh, leg kick thing that he likes doing where it like pushes the guy back and he just, there's no like fainting need. He just runs up and he kicks them and he got caught squaring up. Uh, and that's basically what Justin Gaethje built his entire game against Tony Ferguson. Right? If he steps forward, he's squared up. And that works against guys who he'd been facing who are very, very scared of the uh, game he's playing, but it doesn't quite work against a counterpuncher like Justin Gaethje or it did work against Anthony Pettis a lot, but there are moments where you can see that this fails him. And I think that's what makes his performance against Rafael Dos Anjos such a weird anomaly to me, because it was a very, very thoughtful performance against an opponent who wasn't exactly built to beat him, but did present some risk that we didn't exactly get to see him. Because Dos Anjos is a very capable counterpuncher. He's not a bomber like Justin Gaethje, but he's a very capable counterpuncher. We didn't really see that much because Ferguson, I think the idea of fighting to the level of your competition is something that a lot of people use as an excuse for a lot of flaws that fighters show. But that was one of the few examples I can think of where Tony Ferguson saw his best win so far, in my opinion, that's Rafael Dos Anjos, saw his best win so far and built a game that was pretty smart, incredibly smart, and kind of against type. So, you know, he drew Rafael Dos Anjos counters out. He punished him from just outside his range. Uh, it was a very smart performance. And I think 
that's a performance that I'm not sure he can fight anymore because his usual style, it's subsidized pretty hard by his uh, athletic qualities. He, he can push a tremendous pace. As Ed mentioned, he's a pretty good puncher. Uh, he's just inhumanly durable. We saw that against Justin Gaethje more than anything else. And I'm getting worried that I don't think athletically uh, based styles are bad necessarily, but the trouble is when you get past prime, they plummet harder than any other. So I think if Tony Ferguson taking that 23 minute thumping against Justin Gaethje compromised him even a little bit, and it probably did, uh, this is a fight that we need to be careful about gauging him in. And I'll leave the rest of that to the matchup portion. Ben? Yeah, um, you guys covered a pretty fair amount of, of, of Tony, so I'm going to kind of bleed my commentary on Tony and then into the Charles Oliveira and then go back to the matchup, I guess. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, pretty much all the positive qualities of Tony Ferguson, I think in, in large portion, kind of fall to uh, the, the factors that you can't really control for, um, his durability, his ability to to enforce a pace that virtually nobody can keep. And he built his game entirely off of that. And in large part, if not in entirety, um, obviously the specific tools that he developed in order to em employ that uh, very jabs, leg kicks, and however he employs them in the fight, but it's his general physicality uh, is, is what, informs him as a fighter right and he's always going to be that's like the first thing people are going to think about when they think of Tony Ferguson an animal a wild man of this or that but it's never like oh man he's so technical when he's in the pocket and he's he's you know he's slipping like that's never going to be Tony Ferguson or never has been uh, except for that one RDA fight like you mentioned which is the weirdest anomaly because it was his best opponent and he looked the best he's ever looked so when you have a fighter like that, who's now 36 years old, has had a catastrophic knee injury that was, you know, reconstructed, he's been dropped multiple times. We've seen him, you know, battered and beaten multiple times over and over, even in fights that he's winning. And he's 36 going on 37. You're not going to say, okay, that guy's probably going to come back after the Justin Gagey fight and look exactly the same. Now, again, he absolutely can look like Tony Ferguson. He absolutely can still be close enough to prime Tony Ferguson to overwhelm Charles Oliveira. I'm not going to bank on it. I'm not going to bank on a guy being the same person after something like the Justin Gage, like where he literally had to try and say no to his body shutting down. I think he'll still be there mentally. I don't think anything breaks Tony Ferguson mentally. I can't say the same about his body because we just saw it break literally. Um, so the thing that really boil this matchup boils down to is like, it's obviously the improvements we've seen in Charles Alvarez games, but also like it's the it's the losing step of Tony Ferguson that really informs us the way I'm looking at this matchup because I can't look at this matchup as prime uh, skill for skill. How does this go out? And obviously I'm going to do that anyway, but it's just like the context of the matchup really gives me pause and even really considering Tony to win this fight meaningfully. Two years ago, Tony Ferguson, I would pick him to win this fight. No, you know, a little bit more hesitant in a three rounder because that does favor Charles Oliveira, which I'll get into in a moment. But, you know, Tony Ferguson, pre Justin Gagey, probably pre even, you know, the Cerrone fight, I would go with uh, Tony to win. Now, um, with regard to his actual game, I actually do want to talk briefly about his grappling game. Uh, there's kind of a misconception 
with regard to his actual grappling game, I would say specifically off his back because his, like you said, his front headlock game, his snap downs, his darts, his guillotines, they're all fantastic. Uh, it's actually really, really well thought out how he employs that and what he does. Uh, Dan, you did a, you made a great point with the defending the guillotine and it opens you up for the darts. Um, and I'm the Anaconda as well, but um, <clears throat> the actual game off his back is, it's really not as good as people advertise it to be. I mean, I remember distinctly mostly because i've been watching the fight but the way kevin lee passes guard almost with ease it's kind of like something that people don't realize is that that the things that he does that people are like oh that's so cool that that 10th planet stuff like with the um with the rubber guard and stuff like that that's like most most really good grapplers aren't gonna get stuck there and will be able to either bypass it um passing through or will be able to you know just posture up and just ground and pound through it uh it's a trick that generally doesn't work. Granted, you can use it really effectively. And if there's one really high-level grappler that I would say can get caught with it, it's probably Charles Oliveira. <laughs> because he's just... <laughs> I'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, this is the type of thing that I, I don't see Tony's game off his back stacking up to Charles Oliveira's. I do think he can submit Charles Oliveira because I think Charles Alvarez is the most uniquely high-level submittable black belt in MMA. Um, I think he has the best submission offense and probably the worst submission defense of any high-level guy in MMA today. And it's oh, the most interesting dichotomy to me. But um, I think that's important. And to um, your uh, I think it was uh, Dan, you said that the lankiness people belie, was it Ed or Dan? I don't know which one. It was Ed. Charles Alvarez also fits that bill too. He's freakishly strong for a dude who's got such a lanky frame. And I'm going to now go straight into Charles Alvera because what what's going to, uh, I think, be the key to this matchup is the improvements in Charles Alvera's mental game uh, specifically, more so than anything he's added to his game um, in a technical standpoint or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> also, there's the key tactics that Tony uses, and I'm going to get that's going to be in the matchup portion. Um, Charles's mental game has improved tremendously. I mean, if you look at the way he reacted to Cub Swanson landing that right hand that put him down, where like there's like a three second delay, and then he's just like, "Meh, fuck it, I'm out," and just drops like he was knocked out, is still one of the funniest reactions I've ever seen to anyone getting hit. Period. And then you look at how he reacted not only to getting knocked down by David Tamer while doing his whole "I'm hype, I'm coming forward." But also before that, there were eye pokes. There was multiple fouls against him. And he not only came back, he beat the ever-loving shit out of Tamer after the fact. Uh, the Kevin Lee fight is another example where he was actually doing extremely well and then got taken down. And you see, like, he grabs his shoulder at one point. And I've even pointed this out, I think, in my recap of this uh, when I was on Heavy Hands, that, like, you see Charles, like, just shuts down for two minutes, but then comes back out looking exactly the same. So one of the things that I think he added to his mental to, to fix his mental game specifically was that he get, gave himself like these like ticks for resets, which I think is um, something Dustin Poirier does as well when he does that head cock thing and moving his hair out of the way. It's like these little mental resets, these deep breaths, something to just remind them like, hey, I'm still here. I'm still fighting and I'm still good. And, you know, it, it, it's granted he hasn't fought the level of competition that Tony has. I don't think anyone would make that argument, at least in his run of wins. The guys who he has fought are generally not guys who get blown out of the water, right? And he's in many ways blown these guys out of the water, um, which I think does speak to his skill, but it also speaks to his growing level of confidence and uh, mental fortitude that he's built up. Um, I don't know if it'll never come back where he where he just 
gets shuts down essentially. And if there's anybody who can do it, it's probably Tony Ferguson or Justin Gagey type. But uh, even 36 year old broken down Tony Ferguson is is still going to come at him and still going to try and pressure him. And I do think that uh, now I'll go into the match with it. I do think that the improvements in his actual technical game are going to matter. And I do think that there's something that needs to be pointed out, Ed, when you were talking about Tony's wrestling, you brought up a lot of his fights. But for the most part, the fights that you brought up were kind of prior to the RDA fight, right? Um, Kevin Lee got him down, I think, like three out of four or five times. Uh, Donald Cerrone got him down on his lone takedown attempt. And uh, like you said, he put himself into position to get these, give up these takedowns. And as I think he's faded physically, we've seen him kind of not be able to get out of those takedowns more and more. And that kind of comes down to the problem, I think, with his style and his uh, method of attack, where he's kind of throwing himself... I wouldn't say out of position, but throwing himself too far forward too often. And usually it's not necessarily doing stupid shit, but it can be. Uh, for example, I think he got taken down off a flying knee at one point earlier in his career. I don't remember which fight it was. Um, oh, it was the Edson Barbosa fight. He got through a double flying knee and then just got tripped up or something like that. Edson Barbosa got him tw- down twice. Uh, Cerrone, uh, he threw a spinning elbow right into the clinch. Cerrone got him down pretty easily. Uh, Kevin Lee. Also, uh, I believe he did like a stepping uh, sidekick to the knee and right into the clinch. And Kevin Lee got him down, almost got reversed, but still got him down. Uh, Virtually all of his takedown attempts, uh, his takedowns that he's given up are off of him coming forward, getting too close, getting either clinched up or counter shot. Um, that's Charles Oliveira's specialty. When he shoots for takedowns like center cage or just tries to like do the, the typical takedowns, he generally doesn't get them. He'll end up pushing the guy to the cage. But uh, the most success he's had is when he's, you know, countering into the clinch, using that clinch to get these uh, over under controls and then lifting his opponent, slamming them to the ground. The Will Brooks fight, the Paul Felder fight, uh, the Jim Miller fight is another example. Uh, he's really, really good at those reactive shots. And he'll be able to catch those, um, do that off of kicks, off of punches into the clinch, into the pocket. He's excellent at kind of shutting down those exchanges and getting those takedowns. And unfortunately with the lack of durability, not lack of durability, with the durability question mark for Tony and the fact that Oliveira is generally an extremely fast starter, I kind of see this going in one of two directions. Either we see Charles really, really look good in the first round Tony starts to make a little bit of a comeback in the second and then the third round, Tony might win or Charles may hang on and he loses the decision. But I'm going to kind of actually just say, I honestly think that Charles club and subs him. I think that we see him come out really hard, really fast, uh, catches Tony doing some really dumb shit or just not being there defensively because I feel like Tony does need to kind of like get touched in order to feel the distance. Some guy, I don't know who said, I think Tony needs contacts because he really doesn't seem to be able to gauge distance until he gets touched. Uh, but yeah, I could see a really, really brutal club and sub uh, from Charles. So yeah. For the record before this, I did tell Ben the format and he still jumps the gun and goes into the, the match <laughs> breakdown and gives his prediction. So when we go back around, then you get very little time to, unless we just want to skip you when we do the predictions again. Uh, yeah, just, just blew your load there. You just, just emptied the tank. <laughs> I don't known for in tournaments anyway, so it's fine. You were on, on a roll. Right. No, you could have stopped me. I apologize. That was my bad. No, it was good. Okay, sure. Um, only talk about Charles Oliveira. <laughs> right. So I've always been kind of a Charles Oliveira doubter, like ever since the Felder fight, which I bring up every time someone stands Charles Oliveira. 
because it's fun. And I think Charles Oliveira has improved a lot as a technician, but I also think that, well, okay, I'll put it this way. Uh, when he fought Kevin Lee, my tagline for it was uh, Michael Johnson's mind in a wrestler against Michael Johnson's heart in a grappler. So I, I don't know if that's untrue right now because I think Charles Oliveira is still kind of prone to falling apart. We just haven't really seen it because he faced his, uh, his best elite win, or his only elite win rather, is someone who's just as prone to being outwilled. Um, I think, but all that said, I think Charles Oliveira has kept a lot of the offensive potency that made him so terrifying against low-level opponents, and now he's added a lot of technical tools to it. Become a pretty terrifying pressure counterpunchy type, uh, with which he kind of killed Nick Lentz for like the forty-fifth time. Uh, and I think um, his grappling is something that Ben mentioned a lot. It's a similar front headlock style uh, that uh, Tony Ferguson likes. He's pretty great on top. He did that to Christos Yagos, I believe, for to break that record. Um, he, he has a cool body lock entry. He does. He did that against uh, Paul Felder early. He entered on the body lock and stripped him right to the ground and then consequently blew his load working on the front headlock choke against Paul Felder, who just would not go away. Um, I think I think there are some worrying aspects that I'll leave for the matchup part because I'm not going to be a Ben, uh, considering opponents that just won't go away for uh, Charles Oliveira. You know, you have to take them out of there. They're just not just going to uh, fold in the face of a lot of adversity. But I do think there are a lot of interesting things for um, – Charles Oliveira moving forward, opponents like Dan Hooker might be a little bit more, uh, no, Dan Hooker's actually super durable. I take that back. But, you know, he could have fought like guys like Ally Quinta who are higher ranked than Kevin Lee at that point. Uh, there are a bunch of guys that like who I think would fall for Charles Oliveira's specific game. It's a pretty tough game to deal with. He's also a pretty good athlete. You could push a pace as we saw against Kevin Lee. Uh, he's an avid body kicker. He's not particularly great at it, but he does it a lot. Uh, and, you know, he's, become very, very dangerous everywhere. And that's something that a lot of lightweights aren't great at dealing with. Uh, with Khabib leaving, I think he's a pretty interesting addition to the top of the division. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not as high on Charles Oliveira as a lot of people are as, you know, some sort of epitome of technique type thing. We just needed to fix all his mental issues and he's just the best in the world. I'm not even sure he's fixed those, but I think Tony Ferguson is a very compelling fight for him and I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you. Thank you for following the rules, Shriram. Like some people think they're too good for the format. <laughs> censor, censor. We're also trying to see how many times you can say blow his load on, on this podcast. We'll, we'll see where we end up. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I like Charles Oliveira. I recently watched a few of his fights. Um, I watched a bunch of his fights. I watched the Kevin Lee fight. I watched the Tamer fight. I watched the Jeremy Stevens fight. And I watched the Hatsu Hiyoki fight. Those are the ones I've seen most recently. Uh, and I learned a lot from those fights, and you definitely saw his progression going through those. I should have said them in the reverse order, but yeah, I, I learned a lot by watching them in chronological chronological order like that. And uh, he he's always kind of been a type to to want to be a pressure fighter um, and come forward and, and be pretty high volume. Uh, he is a great athlete. Um, he is an aggressive striker. Um, he's always been aggressive. He's always had actually pretty good cardio, and he's actually always been uh, relatively you know, inherently durable. He just, yeah, he didn't react well to getting hit. Um, he kind of freaked out when things stopped going his way, uh, had weird mental lapses, like the Jim Miller fight, uh, when he kind of was hanging out in 50, 50 and got submitted. I think that's what happened. Um, but yeah, it's really been interesting to see him come together. And really, I think it's like Ben said, it's just been a, a matter of gritting his teeth and saying, let's keep going. Uh, when, when something doesn't quite go his way, he can take the hits. And I think physically maturing and getting bigger and, and a little thicker, um, and, and settling into 155 has been good for him. Uh, I mean, that always helps with durability and confidence. 
Uh, but yeah, I've grown to really like him. Uh, he He's the closest analog to Tony Ferguson we have in the division and possibly the UFC. I know people want to anoint Brandon Royville as Tony because he spins and does submissions, but I think philosophically it's Oliveira is much more Tony than Royville is. Um, pressure, volume, striking into a front headlock series. I mean, that's the same thing. Um, that's exactly what Tony does. Uh, and what's also been cool is watching Oliveira uh, really develop his boxing. He did some pretty cool stuff. Uh, I think he uh, he countered Jared Gordon's entry with like an uppercut or like hit a pivot out and then hit. No, he did something cool off the back foot, which I like, hadn't really seen from him before. Um, it was usually like if he is pushing forward, he's doing well, and if you're coming at him, he's doing less well uh, as a striker. Uh, but yeah, he, he's been cool at, at like crashing the distance with like a bicycle kick, uh, which is an RDA special. RDA has been doing that forever too. I thought that was new. He, he's always done that. Um, and he's been really good at uh, like hitting collar ties and uppercutting off the collar ties and just keeping the steady, lanky pressure game going. Everything's pretty linear. Um, it's all like straight, straight attacks, but it really works for him. It's funny. Uh, one of our patrons, the uh, Karth Raiden, uh, had pointed out that Charles Oliveira, for someone that wants you to try to wrestle with him so he can submit you, all of his striking attacks are very anti-wrestling. Uh, they're all like intercepting levels and they're all like pushing you back and keeping you at range and making it hard for you to wrestle. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure if there's a direct connection there, but just the pushing of the pace and, and the aggression is what's going to draw people in. Um, but like we've talked about, he, he's a good wrestler. He's a good offensive wrestler. Um, has like a surprisingly effective double leg. I think that's where you see the strength come through. Cause you're like, yeah, you have long arms. It's easier to double people against the cage, but you still have to be pretty strong. I mean, Kevin Lee had a bunch of doubles against the cage where he's even like close to locking his hands and RDA was uh, getting that Kimura grip and stopping him. But Charles Oliveira is just bulldozed through people a bunch of times. I think the most impressive time where I was like, what? Had to, what? I wasn't expecting that with Will Brooks because Will Brooks is a pretty impressive athlete himself and a wrestler and Oliveira took him down like it was nothing. Uh, so especially in the first round, he looks like a very strong wrestler. His takedown defense isn't perfect. He's been taken down by a bunch of people, um, upper body and like attacks, you know, you name it. Um, so yeah, it's weird. Ben was talking about it too. Like he is surprisingly vulnerable defensively as a wrestler and grappler, considering like all, all he has uh, with offensive weapons, like things work on him surprisingly well. Like Kevin Lee, the successes he had in that fight didn't look like they were going to work. It looked like it was heading downhill the entire fight just for like how hard it was for Kevin Lee to get things done that he was doing. But he did get them done, and he did get his top control, and he did do the things he wanted to do. It's just that he could not maintain that pace whatsoever, and it was very difficult for him to do that. And then he faded, and then Oliveira, you know, lured him into his trap um, and, and got him to make mistakes. But yeah, I, I'm very interested in him these days. Um, I think if he's going to lose going forward, it's issues with his game. It's not that he is going to break mentally or there's any huge issue with his like conditioning or anything like that. I think we're just going to start to see what are the fundamental issues that are that are going to be exploited. Um, not talking about the matchup, but I think there are areas uh, that can be exploited versus Tony Ferguson. And we did talk about the Anthony Pettis fight. That's my favorite fight of like what is wrong with Charles Oliveira. Um, that that's a good one because it's like it's a lot of grappling. Um, and you get to see him in what is supposed to be his comfort zone, and, and he makes a lot of mistakes and it gives up a lot of uh, gives up a lot of attacks. But yeah, I definitely enjoyed watching him, catching up with him, getting familiar with him. I didn't used to like him, but I thought, oh, he's a quitter. 
Um, but he is, if he was before, he's not now. So I think that's definitely a, a popular narrative heading into this fight. And Dan, you can talk about Charles Oliveira and you can do the, the breakdown of the matchup and your prediction. You can do it all. Yay, nice. Uh, cool, because I thought I was going to have to compartmentalize, though I will tease the end, which I feel like it comes down to these fighters' cores, to their current status. So I'll save that for um, the, the end of this little little talk here. Uh, but sp- I do bring that up because uh, uh, that I think that's – I agree with pretty much everything Ed said except for – not that I disagree. I could totally see how, how, how you could see that uh, Oliveira and Ferguson are of a similar um, – archetype uh, i just feel like they're different at their core um i do feel like though however in defense of how ed or anybody else could see that and uh, more specifically what ben cited as far as his improvements i feel like he's fortified his arsenal enough to where he can pose those similar threats which is why like i forgive anybody who has that take like i, I could totally see where you're coming from if that makes sense um however it's just interesting looking back you know at his at his career because i think I went back to one of the first times I, I called in to the show I used to be on MMA Junkie Radio was after his fight against Efrain Escudero. This is September. This is about a year before Tony gets into the UFC. His second fight in the UFC, Oliveira's, right? Uh, Mark Hart versus Paul Harris. How about that, guys? UFC Fight Night 22. Um, and I remember calling in going, man, I like this Oliveira cat. He's got Muay Thai. He's got the jujitsu to counter the wrestlers, clearly, right? Escudero is a tough winner. He still was uh, held pretty fairly high back then for, for what, for whatever his status was. And I was like, if this guy can just get a jab, man, um, it's going to be some big trouble. Right. And it's crazy because, you know, he does fill in actually the wrestling before the jab part toward the very end of the decade, right? He, he loses to Frankie Edgar. And it's at the very end of the first half of the decade, I should say, December, 2014, at Jeremy Stevens fight, we really see him kind of switch gears because he was the guard guy, which I agree with Ben's note that he is a more dangerous guard guy than Tony, right? He comes in, he submits Elkins who, you know, ends up proving his worth for who Elkins is, right? Um, but it's funny, it's not toward the second round of improvements. Now that second renaissance, if you will, remember that word renaissance, because I'll tie that into the end conclusion here of what I'm predicting. But you see toward the end of the second dec- uh, second half of the decade, now we're seeing more straight punches, uh, which is tying in uh, and, and bringing to life that he's always had those anti-wrestler moves, right? Which is Ed was spot on with the knees and the uppercuts, but it's the jabs and it's the, the lead-ons, which is, you know, helping form the pressure and helping encourage these real high impact spots. Um, so I like that. But the wrestling is strange because tying into the guard notes that Ben had, as well as the wrestling notes here that you guys all kind of touched on in your own way, which I agree on. Um, but I feel like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. First of all, I think he's going to take Tony down, whether Tony gives the takedown, like Ed said, which by the way, I don't think that's just for the Castillo fight. I love that you mentioned that. Ed. I think you're the only person I've heard mention that, but he does it. You could argue some of the Kevin Lee takedowns, but there's at least one or two for sure that he's got defended. And I will opt that he willingly goes down. Now, I, I agree with Ben that he overestimates his his skills there, right? And we see it almost kind of cost him toward the end of that round one. You know, Kevin Kevin Lee's got him mounted, you know, and this is Robert Follis trained Kevin Lee, right? He's doing the right things, but Kevin Lee has a kind of a trend which we'll see pop up in, you know, the Charles Oliveira fight, which... You know, um, you know, which, 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 you know, which is interesting because he takes, you know, he gets, he gets on top or gets like to, you know, dangerous positions on Kevin Lee, 
but that fight was like less uh impressive you know when i went to go back and watch it and i watched it right before we went here however um even though i feel like you know it's kevin lee more being tired we see it with the rda we, it's, it's kind of a pattern now and i love kevin lee i'm just calling it for what it is right um it's kind of a pattern and Oliveira, despite looking in better shape and boy i mean this guy looks thick I don't think that that's why Tony tweeted the come in on weight thing so much. But if you really look at Oliver, he's really put the weight on, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, he's got his doctors in order, like many fighters at this point of the USADA range. It's not really, you know, the only people getting popped are weed and metabolites, neither here nor there, not, not throwing accusations. The point is as good as Oliveira looked, right. He's still gassing and looking like really bad. He's putting down the proverbial pack, um, toward the end of round two. And that, again, page note that, and I promise I'm pushing the prediction in the next couple sentences here, page those page note that as well. He tends to drop the pack around then, you know, we've seen it win uh, in the Oliveira fight or lose in the Lamas fight. So even though I could see as I run through the last decade there of who Oliveira is, and I push on to the prediction now, even though I can see the fortification of his game, he deserves credit for it. I'm a do Bronx fan. It makes me even more excited for him, but when you look back at the big picture, I believe that a his, his his core is arguably still the same. We could still see these things pop up. You know, I'm going to take my medicine to my man Shuram here when we get talking about Figueredo. But we saw it when he fought Perez. You know, I dismissed the early guillotine, um, the early guillotine losses. But I'm wondering as my shoulders hurt and my neck hurts, I'm like, wow. There's it's kind of not a coincidence that I'm more of a wrestle centric, push forward, head first type of guy, grappler. Um, yeah, no, no, no shit, Sherlock. Forgive me for cursing that. Yeah, your neck's getting caught and your shoulders are getting caught in Kimura's all the time, dummy. It's just inherently who you are. And it's not, I don't like to paint with a broad brush in life and you can't do it in MMA, folks. However, I feel like it's fair to say that if you are who you are and we get a gist of who you are and you've had a chance to flesh out who you are, like Oliveira has and even Ferguson has, I feel like it's safe to say you kind of are that person more often than not, not every time. More often than not, you can fortify, you can evolve. Oliveira's done that. He deserves the credit for that. But most of the time he's getting these takedowns, he's corralling guys to the edge of the cage, which A, I would argue, not just at lightweight, in, our, in almost any weight class, Tony Ferguson is one of the hardest guys to corral against the cage. The reason why, I kind of like to Ed's point, the guys that did get takedowns on him, what were they doing? Even, even guys like Cerrone, which Cerrone doesn't get enough credit. Cerrone, it's no surprise. People have been talking about it for the last couple of years. Like that's been going on for almost a decade too, folks. He learned to wrestle when he was in the WEC. Cerrone has always hit level changing reactive takedowns on good fighters in multiple weight classes early in fights. The sun will rise and Cerrone will do that. So that didn't really surprise me so much there. And again, couple in the point of Tony, you know, given the, uh, given the takedowns, but corralling Tony to the cage is a very hard, th hard thing. You know, and to Shuram's point, I love that he brought up the RDA fight. That's such a weird anomaly because he's fighting smart. Um, he's going to fight a measured fight uh, at elevation. Remember, that was like a crazy elevation fight where RDA almost killed himself to make weight. He's going to put on, he's always had a really good jab that I wish he leaned on more. But when does he lean on it against like a world championship level Southpaw? Like, and again, for those like the Heavy Hands podcast, shouts to them, like striking analysts who can speak better than me on it. We'll tell you that shouldn't be a surprise, but we don't see it done in MMA, right? So I love that you mentioned that as such an anomaly. I'm not going to, I agree with you too. I feel like those days are beyond. I referenced that fight, hoping we'll see that Tony come back. I, I agree with you, Sharam. I don't think we're going to see that Tony come back. However, those tools are there back to who these guys are inherently as people. And I do feel like that jab, even if he's not applying it as smartly as the RDA fight, 
I believe that alone will do well and wonders on uh, Oliveira, even in Oliveira's last fight. Why did Oliveira shoot um, in the first place? He actually didn't come out to shoot like he normally does, right, against Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee actually started finding range, and he hit him with a 1-1-2, and then Oliveira reactively goes down, right? And he didn't pay for it like Kevin Lee did for, you know, catching the kick and giving an easy guillotine in the third round later in that same fight. But man, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I still see them at the core being the same fighters. I do believe that current status, Oliveira gets the upper hand. He's built more on. He has more to hope for. Whereas Tony, we're sitting there trying to do a damage cost, right? We're trying to audit him here. So I'm not denying any of that. But ultimately, I'm going to pick this fight of who they are at their core. And um, I, I still feel like Tony is, is the more durable guy. Uh, I still feel like he's the less susceptible to fall into those front chokes. That even in his quote-unquote possibly shot at his worst pandemic era, even against a world-class fighter fighting at one of his best performances in Justin Gaethje. If that uppercut comes a little earlier, guys, you know, I know it's blasphemous to some to suggest this, but Tony Ferguson still could have won that fight as good as Gaethje looked and as terrible as Ferguson looked. And when was that? It wasn't just the uppercut folks. He was actually doing arguably his best striking and body and overall work toward the end of the second round. That's when Tony tends to pick up. That's when Oliveira, early Oliveira, mid-range Oliveira, late Oliveira, winning Oliveira, losing Oliveira, make weight Oliveira, doesn't make weight Oliveira. The common thread, he puts down that proverbial pack in round two. So the under is probably the safest bet, but uh, as far as my pick goes, guys, I'm going to go for Ferguson. Sorry for the long-winded tie-up. That was nice. So you really planned that one out. It really, really came together across across the, uh, the prediction there. No, I love it, and I love being on the same page as you, Dan Tom. Uh, we, we were feeling the same things uh, last time too, and that didn't work out so well for us. But I, I, I feel better this time. Uh, but yeah, my the the crux of my prediction is two things I need to be true. I need it to be true that Tony Ferguson has a chin. I don't think his chin would just completely disappear from one fight to the next. I mean, Gaethje was hitting him so hard, so often, and it took a lot to put a dent in him. And he still didn't put him out or down. It's just your face and head can only take so much, even if you're not getting rocked and dropped. Uh, Meanwhile, Anthony Pettis dropped him, what, twice? That was crazy. (laughs) So Tony Ferguson needs to still be marginally durable. Uh, Not prime durability, but he needs to be able to take it, which I expect. I expect that. That, That's a reasonable thing to expect. Um, I'm a lot less worried about it than I would be if he wasn't a maniac pressure fighter. Because Oliveira, when he really starts to land big, is when he gets people on the back foot and he starts to walk them down and find his range and, and really uh, track them down. Whereas Ferguson, I feel like there's going to be collisions. Um, not, not constant, because I think in his last couple, he's been uh, reeling it in a little bit. Uh, if you watch his prime lightweight performances, it is he is literally crashing forward pretty much the entire time. He stopped doing that against RDA. Um, he didn't really do that as much again. Well, he did a little bit against Kevin Lee, um, but he didn't really do it against Cowboy. He didn't really do it against Gaethje. Uh, he's been doing it less. And I think this will be a fight where he does it less as well. Um, unless he's like, I need to have a career resurgence time to go back to the old Tony. Um, he could, I don't think it'd be a huge issue if he did, but I think at the very least he'll be holding at least a decent mid range. He'll pick his, his moments a little better to get those, uh, you know, blitzes going if you want to call him that uh and and he'll be fine he'll be fine i think he'll crash that that range a little bit more often 
and Oliver won't have as much time to start to build momentum. Uh, momentum is a really big thing for both of these guys. Um, but Tony Ferguson, I would say dangerous more often, uh, dangerous in more stages of the fight. Whereas Oliver, it's once he starts to get rolling, that's when things get really uh, dicey uh, for people. Whereas Ferguson, it's like attrition. Oliver is like building up to a moment. There's going to be a moment where he, he really like does something significant. So I, I think there's a difference there. Uh, I think, you know, I could see him hurting Oliver on the inside uh, when they come together. Uh, that's definitely where Ferguson has an advantage. They're both pretty strong at mid-range uh, and long-range, but I think if they, if they get close, if Oliver isn't wrestling him, uh, that's where, you know, the elbow game starts to come in. Uh, I know I talked about Oliveira, you know, using his clinch to, to hit his uppercuts and, and such, but we haven't really seen him do that as much off the back foot besides against people who are a lot less competent than Tony Ferguson. That's a lot of where my prediction lies is the people that Oliver has fought on his recent streak. None of them offer anything remotely comparable to what Ferguson does. We haven't really seen him fight a good committed pressure fighter. The best striker he fought was David Tamer and Tamer accepted the back foot immediately and put on a very impressive back foot performance. Mind you, that's a, a really, really tough thing to maintain over, over time. Uh, eventually you're going to break down you're going to eat something. That's what happened. Um, so, you know, kudos to him, but that's not the kind of performance I think is going to really show how you beat Charles Oliveira, unless you're looking at a master counter puncher, which a bunch of guys in this division are. So if you get to Oliveira up to a little further, you have Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor, and Justin Gaethje, who are perfectly happy to punch your lights out when you're coming in. So I think Ferguson's going to dictate the range a little bit more. Uh, I think he'll put Oliveira on the back foot more often than he's used to. And Oliveira won't have as much time to get going. That being said, I still think it's competitive. I agree with both Ben and Dan. I don't know if you said it, Sharam, that Oliveira is going to take him down. I'm pretty sure he's going to take him down. But I don't think that's a huge deal, honestly. Not that Tony's game off his back is like so amazing and he's going to finish him there. But I think he can keep it active. I think he can keep it competitive. I think he's going to elbow him. Um, I think he's going to make it tough for Oliveira to pass. And uh, Tony's a transitional grappler. So if he does kind of create that sense of urgency for Oliveira to pass and, and do things, I think that's, that works in his favor. He wants, he wants Oliveira to be trying to pass and, and create openings and, and create, produce offense rather than just, you know, control him. And uh, we'll see what Oliveira wants to do. And he, he's had some differing approaches over the years, um, but he, he has a beautiful game once he gets going. Uh, funny enough, I think it works better against the cage for him. And you don't, as Dan says, you don't see Tony there very often uh in my wrestling research he looked fantastic in the clinch getting off the cage i mean i've never seen anyone get to it that quickly um gets an underhook and just really good leverage uh blocking the hip and turning people off that way again did against abel trujillo a lot i had no trouble getting off the cage and I was like, that is very interesting because physically it looked like that was a fight that he was having trouble um and yet when they were actually tied up that's when tony looked the best so i think he'll still be strong I think that's like one of the last things to go. Um, so the more that they are colliding and grappling, uh, the more I favor Tony Ferguson. Obviously, Oliveira is super dangerous with his submission game, but I really see them grappling a decent amount in this fight. And I see that slowly but surely working towards uh, a Ferguson win. Um, and like Dan said, the other thing I'm depending on is that Oliveira will get tired. I don't think he has a huge cardio issue, but I think the, 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 type, the way he fights, you're going to get tired. Um, he's good at fighting while tired against some people. He's gotten better at it, uh, but he starts to get sloppier. He starts to make some mistakes. And that's why I really like the Anthony Pettis fight because he didn't even make like a massive mistake. 
he just like was a little bit careless in a transition and Anthony Pettis got his neck and he finished him. So that is possible. And that is actually exactly how I see this going. Um, that the grappling exchanges will start to heat up. Ferguson will keep pressing that, that sense of urgency with his offense for Oliveira to do more, try to grapple him more often, try to, you know, get control of him more often. And that's going to open up Ferguson's offense. So I'm not crazy confident in it, but I could really see a similar dynamic to the Pettis fight where Ferguson submits him. And that is my pick. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to uh, start by saying I'm going to go with Oliveira here. Uh, but I think it's really interesting uh, considering Dan's points. I think that can actually be turned a little bit uh, against uh, Tony Ferguson. Because if you look at, well, the two points that he made were the momentum curve of the fight, which favors Tony Ferguson once it gets out of round two. And the fact that fighters tend to, uh, to put it a little bit bluntly, they tend to be who they are after a certain point in their careers. But I think for the first one, if you look at how Charles Oliveira starts fights, he starts them recklessly. He starts them very quick. He's very offensively potent. And Tony Ferguson has been a notable slow starter very, very often in his career. You look at the Lando Venata fight, he got dropped early. You look at the Cowboy Cerrone fight, that was ugly for a round. I hated it so much. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a Cowboy Cerrone noted hater. Uh, so I don't like watching Cowboy Cerrone have any success with his boxing, especially against an elite fighter. But that was an ugly fight from Tony Ferguson. He tore him apart round two, but he had a lot of trouble that first round on the inside uh, when someone got inside his punches. And I think that's an issue for Tony Ferguson throughout his career. He's, ha he's always had it. He's always needed a little bit of time to get his range, start pressuring. And even once he had that against Anthony Pettis early round two. So it's like the first six minutes, that's danger for Tony against anybody. And with my doubts on whether his athleticism can subsidize his style anymore, I think those are only going to get more dangerous against guys who aren't easy style matchups like Pettis was and like Cerrone was to a pressure fighter who's going to push them to the fence. If they found moments... I'm not sure I can trust Oliveira to not find those moments. Now, the other point is that fighters just are who they are. And I do agree with Oliveira because I said that against Kevin Lee. He outwilled a fighter who's like pretty easy to outwill on the whole. But if you look at Tony Ferguson's first loss in the UFC, that was Michael Johnson, a counterpuncher who's going to draw, well, who drew uh, Tony into him. And then you look at the Gaethje fight. Gaethje was a much more nuanced version of it. And Tony was a much more nuanced version of who he was. But if you look at the archetype, it's not terribly dissimilar to the way, Tony, uh, to the way Gaethje fought Tony. You look at a guy who's able to keep his positional integrity on the inside against someone who's going to square up and walk into him. And uh, that the dynamic isn't the same because Tony added a lot to his game to become the lightweight contender that he was. He wasn't very good back then, but the, the thing is that the flaws were not too dissimilar. And I think if we're going to go by that kind of heuristic, and I think that's generally a very effective way to pick fights. Like if uh, keeping it simple is generally a very effective way to pick fights as much as we go into like the details and stuff, those don't always have a way of bearing out. But the way that I look at Tony is that if he's going to keep being who he is in terms of squaring up in the pocket and in terms of the pace that he has to push to win a fight, I think Oliveira is a dangerous fight. And I'm not sure I can trust Tony Ferguson to win dangerous fights at this point in his career. So I think both of what uh, Dan's pointing against Oliveira, they definitely stand. If he gets out of round two, I think it's going to get really, really, really ugly for, uh, for Charles Oliveira. It's going to gas out. I think those mental integrity issues are going to come back. And that probably means Tony's found some success playing from the edge of the pocket, jabbing, kicking the body. There are going to be some issues for Oliveira there. But I do think that there are spots where Oliveira's uh, strengths coincide with Ferguson's weaknesses, just as much as there are where Ferguson's weaknesses or Ferguson's strengths rather coincide with Oliveira's weaknesses. And I think I'm just going to take the younger guy who's uh, who's proven to be more offensively potent, who hasn't looked as compromised, who hasn't taken that kind of brutal beating at the very end of his prime. 
it's tough for me to favor Ferguson as many points as there are just based on that fact. So um, I kind of hope Ferguson has a great showing. It'd be very, very heartening because like, you know, uh, my brand is liking fighters who have been held down by the man, but it's, um, it's tough. I'm going to go with Oliveira knockout round one. That's fair. It's a fair and rational breakdown, Shuram. And I can't, I can't blame you whatsoever. And that's very reasonable. And uh, I've only recently come around to picking Tony Ferguson after uh, my, maybe it's recency bias, my new, my new Tony Ferguson research. Um, yeah, I'm just hoping for a great fight overall. Uh, ben, after hearing these breakdowns, do you have anything else to say? Um, I mean, no, I don't really want to go back into breaking it down. I just think that um, Oliveira will always be perpetually underrated, I feel like, um, due to his, we've, we've seen him grow up. I think he came in at 21 years old to the UFC. He's been in the UFC for what, like over a decade at this point or something like that. I don't, I think that when we have those types of fighters, we often overlook how good they become later on, especially if they're people we expected to be better or really, yeah. really good earlier on. And I think that may be the case a little bit with Charles personally. So um, yeah, like I said, I'm picking him to win this fight. I think this is going to be his breakout moment. So cool. We're split again. That's, that's good. That's good. I like it. Um, so that's, that's Ferguson Oliveira. Um, I am more excited. I was already excited. I'm more excited now. Uh, just all, all the wrinkles, all the, all the different dynamics. And the only bad outcome here is that uh, Tony doesn't show up like a fighter who is interesting or, you know, that can win fights against anyone good. Um, as long as he is, you know, 75% <laughs> of what he's been, uh, I think we get a good fight. Um, but yeah, I, I can't wait to make lots of excuses if he loses. I'm going to hedge super hard. Um, but for think, now, I'm, I'm feeling decent. I think we're all a little bit afraid this becomes like a Mark Hominick post Aldo fight oh, situation. Geez. I think we're all a little afraid of that, and we're kind of hoping not. We're hoping Tony's still there. That was bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he got knocked out real quick by the Korean zombie, and then uh, Eddie Yagen was rocking him through his guard. That was yeah, weird, that. one of the weirdest fights I've ever seen. Speaking of people who are knocked out by Korean zombie very quickly. Uh, yeah, switch to that one. Let's let's okay. Soon. Let's let's yeah, no. let's, let's uh, I just wanted to take a segue because it was too good. It's good. Let's adhere to the order. But yeah, Hanada Moikano wasn't in, in fact knocked out by the Korean zombie. Uh we're gonna get to that one a little bit. Um let's talk about the main event. Um we spent a lot of time talking about Figueredo on our last panel. So I would like to direct people to the fight site staff predictions, uh Figueredo versus Perez panel with uh these three guys and dan martin no ben uh and as i said dan is hiding in shame because he picked perez like a coward and then <laughs> didn't come back to own up to it like he does he always does this. he always disappears after he's wrong it's so transparent anyway <laughs> let's talk about the main event so we already talked a lot about figueredo so uh, we can keep it brief but let's let's go around again just just the, the dynamics and the pick. Let's just let's get right to right to the meat. And I'm going to go first. I don't have that much to say. Um, I think Moreno is very good. I was very sad when he beat Formiga. Uh, his lead hand was was a lot of what was doing the work. He's very quick with his left hook. He's got a good read on the jab. He's got a good read on a lot of things. I think whatever his training situation is, I'm not super familiar with it. I think he trains in the states. Um, he they're good game, game planners. Uh, he's able to make some solid. He's been typing to me. Uh, he's able to make some solid reads. I don't know if they're in the moment or, or beforehand, but just based on the speed at which he gets to them, I think that they are predetermined reads. 
The problem is that Davis and Figueredo is also a responsive fighter. You know, he's the person who makes reads. Uh, whereas his are, let's see what you're giving to me and I'm going to counter you. I'm sure he does a little bit of research beforehand, but he's much more intuitive as a fighter, whereas Moreno, I think, prepares beforehand for a lot of specific situations. Like against uh, Formiga, he was like, oh, it's a baby. <laughs> as a baby panelist. Um, then for real, your baby looked like a doll when you first brother over. I, I couldn't understand that was a real person. Um, big doll eyes. But yeah, Moreno is very, very intuitive. And again, not, not intuitive. Figueroa is intuitive. Moreno is predetermined. He got me all, my brain scrambled uh, with the cuteness. <laughs> but yeah, against Formiga, he looked super well prepared for a lot of specific situations. And that's what got him through to the win. Figueroa is so much harder to prepare for. And I think that's going to affect the way he looks in this fight. Like I think when he looks super dialed in and good, it's because he prepared super hard for specific looks. And here he's going to have to improvise a bit more. I don't know how well that plays for him. Uh, Zach Makovsky in his breakdown of this fight in the Statics article, which will be out soon after this, uh, talked about Moreno being being a decent wrestler, and I, I agree. I think he he has an offensive wrestling game. It's nothing amazing. Uh, he has good timing on reactive shots. Uh, he can shoot against the cage. He took down Dustin Ortiz, uh, which impresses me. Um, yeah, go ahead then. You're good. Um, but yeah, he, he's decent in that regard. But we saw Alex Perez looking awesome <laughs> taking uh trying to take down uh, Figueredo and that did not work out well for him um I can't say for certain who has better in a vacuum submission defense Perez and Moreno probably Moreno but who's a better top position grappler and, and controller is definitely definitely Perez uh, that's his that's his game uh so I respect Moreno's like very well-roundedness and, and his danger uh, in a lot of different positions and his, his volume and his overall approach. I think he's an excellent fighter. Um, I just don't think he is good enough in any one zone to truly challenge Figueroa. I think it'll be pretty competitive, but I, I, I just see similar things that I'm going to see for a lot of Figueroa opponents. I think he's going to eat some big counters. I think he's going to have a hard time dictating where the fight takes place. I think he's going to have a hard time avoiding danger um, wherever the fight goes, just because Figueroa is, is danger man. Now, like whatever you try to do to him, he's like, I have a way to finish you. Now I'm going to try to finish you in with the weight cut seeming to be under control. Uh, perhaps his cardio will be improved. I don't know. I'm just, I'm having a hard time picking against Figueredo now. I don't see any big threats from, from Moreno that, that lead me to that decision. What do you think about this fight, Dan, Tom? This is a tough one, man. Um, I'll try to keep it short too because I haven't uh, written my article yet. Well, I didn't write my article yet for the other one. You guys are getting the first take here, but uh, I actually taped it. Um, whereas this one's kind of off memory. It's a quick turnaround though, since we uh, all of, I'm sure, did a little bit of study on Moreno, but definitely on Figueredo in reference to the last uh, last time I was on your show. Um, so it's kind of fresh in our head, and it's it's ironic. I think the biggest variable is going to be this turnaround because even though this is another case where Brandon Moreno is a guy who um, has more in and out of the UFC going to decision and finishing going longer and finishing in five round fights. He's going to, um, he has more experience there than Figueredo, which is kind of like you're trying to throw darts at like, what could be a possible hole? Like maybe that's maybe in the higher or more common percentage to be like, well, if it goes later, maybe what's, what's going to be the problem, you know, is Figueredo going to drop off, you know? And I think we've shown that he can kind of have those. And I think you guys, here made the UL Romero comparison in the sense of like the opportunistic, um, you know, he'll be able to, to land those power shots and equalize. And as we know, with judging 
trending with as it should be because these are how the rules have been kind of revised for a few more than a few years now um it definitely favors the athletes right and kind of like i said even though i didn't pick figure eight and i was wrong he had to take my medicine um i guess i was right in the sense of he he capitalizes on chaos so he can he can also finish before then and we we did see that and again shouts to uh Shuram, who actually think i you know i credited him but i definitely stole his line there uh where he on this show he was like if figure eight wins the hard part is like he's going to look like a minus 1000 favorite. Um, so he was totally spot on with that, which is probably why I'm going to agree with Ed to where people like Ed will say like, dude, it's just so hard to pick against this guy. Um, so I'm going to pick against, I'm going to pick Figueredo. And ironically, I, I don't know if I'll officially pick this, but like this would be a matchup because of Moreno's durability um, where I would actually pick Figueredo like to win by a decision, like his first five round decision. I think we could see that. But that quick turnaround just puts a monkey wrench in everything because Figueredo is obviously a huge flyweight. He cuts a lot, and he's had problems before, even though now he's working with the nutritionist. Was he just doing the hen and brow thing where he just wasn't doing anything before? And now he is. Can he maintain it? You know, these are question marks, whereas Moreno, I think he's a decently sized um, flyweight, and he can decently wrestle, although it's more opportunistic, like – I feel like he would, Ed, Ed, you could tell me more, but I feel like he would be more, even though he could do hit level tuning shots, he would be more like of a, a counter wrestling of a reshot guy, probably if you were to throw him in college, which is also another reason why, even though he's able to hang with these wrestlers, if he can't put them away, um, like the Dustin Ortiz of the world, which is super impressive. Uh, we see him in really close fights, which in my opinion, he's riding a five fight winning streak because Asker Askarov continues to be the luckiest flyweight um, winning fights. He shouldn't win. Now I don't have anything against the guy, by the way, I'm just like, you're getting lucky, you son of a gun. We're looking at who the tough matchups are. They're all matched up fighting each other. So we'll probably see Asker Askarov get up there, and, and that'll age well, that draw. But, um, but yeah, man, it's, it's going to be a wild card. I'm going to pick for Goredo. It's just I, – I don't know if it's going to be inside the distance or if it's by decision, and it definitely could get sketchy the longer this goes, more so than usual because of the turnaround. Yeah. I'm going to ask Ben to go next, so that's sure I'm going to do the, the turnaround and go first for uh... – Boy, so Ben, what, what are your overall reads and, and pick for uh, Figueredo Moreno? I mean, I think the overall read is pretty um, is pretty standard across the board. Um, Fig's obviously going to have the physicality advantage and, and all that. Um, I, I, I'm 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 often uh, not often I'm often too willing to pick the underdog and too willing to pick against the champion, mostly because um, I want to see something that might not be there sometimes. Uh, I happen to think I'm going to pick, uh, I'm going to spoil it and then go explain why, but I'm going to pick Moreno by decision. And I don't mind being the odd man out here. The reason why is, is it's strictly particularly because of the fact that it's a three week turnaround and it's the double weight cut. And again, um, but stylistically, I do think there's a lot there for Moreno to kind of build off the Formiga performance. Um, I'm sure there's been some improvements in Figueredo's game since then, obviously. I mean, he's an elite athlete who's really at the championship level, and you don't beat the guys he's beaten without improving. But um, I think that there's something interesting about Moreno's game. He's going to have the reach and, and, and length advantage, and I think he's, as we've seen him grow as a fighter, he's starting to use it better and better. I still love the way he throws his, um, his jab and then follows it up with that lead, leg, that lead head kick. It's a really, really great way of both uh, pecking away from the outside with uh, while also throwing in a very powerful shot at the same time, but it still maintains a really long range. And considering Figueredo is going to want to counter him with punches on the inside, 
it's not going to allow him to necessarily unless he kind of tries to crash through that jab and maybe hit him with the cross counter. But uh, if Moreno keeps those exchanges really short, one, two, three strikes at most, and then kind of like gets out of there, he's not going to really give Figueredo as many opportunities to really get his reads and land those counters, right? And as long, again, this is all assuming that he's going to be maintaining range. Moreno can uh, scrap a little too often for his own good sometimes. And I think that, but I also think he has the, the ability to maintain a super disciplined game plan. Um, I think that another factor that's also going to really be important is uh, Moreno's durability compared to a lot of Figueredo's other recent opponents and his ability to not only maintain a pace, but actually increase it as the fight goes on. Uh, Figueredo, we know, does slow down even when he's at his best, uh, when he's fully prepared. We've seen him slow down. Uh, he's got, he can still fight when he slows, but he's noticeably not the same fighter. Against someone like Moreno, who's going to probably up the pace, especially is if he's able to take the shots and isn't going to get cowed, which I think we saw that with the Pettis fight, that he can be, but he was so raw. Uh, so there's that. So I think that his durability and his ability to not only keep the pace, but up the pace as the fight goes on is really going to wear on Figueredo. Uh, the biggest detriment that Moreno has is, again, he doesn't have a really good traditional wrestling game, which is something we've seen Figueredo struggle with a lot in the past, um, the Jared Brooks fight, for example. Um, but I do think he has a crafty enough uh, wrestling game that he'll be able to maybe threaten with reactive shots to get Figueredo honest. And if they do engage in the grappling, I just think that Moreno is, a, is, is an incredibly crafty and skilled grappler himself. He's not going to be like outsized necessarily uh, or completely overpowered, I think. So I think that we're going to see that he can hang with Figueredo should that fight hit the ground. Uh, so that's my reasoning behind the Moreno uh, via decision. I just think he'll be able to survive whatever onslaught there is, kind of like keep Figueredo at either way too far or way too close for him to do to deal out the, the damage he wants to deal. And he's going to be able to outlast him and kind of take the title. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a decent read. Uh, I think I'm going to go with Figueredo pretty confidently here. And it's not to just, you know, disregard everything that you said, but I kind of think that. Uh, Brandon Moreno has, uh, it, it's a weird fight for him because I think it covers a lot of the things that have troubled him in the past that haven't necessarily been tested again. Because if you look at the counterpunchers that Brandon Moreno's faced, uh, you've got Sergio Pettis and you've got Alexandria Pantoja, both of whom kind of completely ruined him at uh, a distance for a long stretch of the fight. Uh, Sergio Pettis' third round especially is pretty similar to the kind of thing that Figueredo did against uh, Joseph Benavides, where he pressured um, Moreno pretty hard drew out his weird mechanical things and countered him with the straight right, which is something that uh, Figueredo does very well. Um, I think the thing about Moreno is that his recent opponent, if you look at the Kai Car France fight, for instance, Car France was landing on him pretty much for free a lot of the time, uh, including on the counter, also on the lead. And um, he just kind of broke, he kind of broke against Moreno's pressure. And I don't think Figueredo's the kind to do that. I think if you give Figueredo a lot, he's going to give you a lot. And we saw that against Alexander Pantosha. Because Pantoja pushed hard. Pantoja pushed super, super, super hard for the entire uh, 15 minutes. And he got pretty much completely destroyed. I believe I scored that at 30-27, even while Figueredo was slowing down because of that uppercut at the beginning of the third round. So I don't think output is the way to beat Davis and Figueredo without defense that's genuinely elite. If you look at Juicy Formiga, he drew Figueredo out. He drew him forward where Figueredo's a little bit worse. Uh, he didn't give him much to work off. Uh, and he worked a transitional game that Brandon Moreno doesn't really have. So I think that's going to be a little bit of trouble for Brandon Moreno to stay safe. And I mean, I think 
The thing about Brendan Moreno is he's very good, but I also think he's limited in ways that Figueredo has dealt with before. Because if you look at, uh, for example, again, the Pantoja fight, right? I don't want to say like Pantoja beat Moreno and Fig beat Pantoja, but a lot of the matchup there is like Pantoja counterpunching Moreno very, very comfortably for at least the first bit. Moreno kind of getting beaten up 10-8 round one at least, uh, nearly finished. And Figueredo, he's looked like one of the most powerful, varied counterpunchers that Flyweight's ever seen, with the exception of maybe Joseph Benavidez, who's, you know, more of a combination counterpuncher, but also not quite as powerful with single shots, maybe a little bit less varied, but, you know, there's there's a lot to look for here for Figueredo, a lot of spots where Figueredo can do things safely, and I don't think there are nearly enough spots for Brendan Moreno to do the same. Um, as for the wrestling, I mentioned this in the Staff Picks article, and Ed mentioned it briefly. I think Moreno is a good wrestler. He's shown some good wrestling things, but I also think he's much more of a scrambler than a top control person. Uh, we saw that against fights in like Askar Askarov and even Sergio Pettis, I think, although Pettis is like uniquely controllable in a way that Figueredo is not. But I think if Figueredo can muscle his way out from underneath Juicy Formiga, uh, that's going to be tough for Brandon Moreno to hold him down. Like Formiga is pretty much the premier anti-scrambler in flyweight history. We saw that in the uh, Dustin Ortiz fight. And late in the third, uh, Figueredo just went, I don't want to be here anymore and got up out of mount. So that's going to be pretty rough for Renan Moreno, in my opinion. And I don't think the feat is forgetting at all. Um, I think Figueredo has some challenges, but mostly up a weight class. If they brought Sergio Pettis back, I think that'd be a pretty interesting fight for Figueredo because it'd be someone who can draw him forward, uh, jab out his counters and, you know, do some interesting things. But I also think that the dynamism difference would eventually reveal itself in that kind of fight. Uh, Figueredo is good at that. So I don't, I think Moreno can drag an ugly fight out of Figueredo, but Figueredo also thrives in those, and he's going to have a pretty big firepower difference to, to gain that edge. Sorry, I was still muted. Yeah, I think uh, I like I like the dissent, I like the differences in opinion, but I think everything was reasonable that everyone said. And Ben, I totally understand your point of view. Um, and it's just like, it's so crazy that Figueredo is at this point in his career and like is a defending champion and I still don't know what it looks like for him to be in like a really basic kind of fight like a like a volumey you know long decision I mean the Pantoja fight is the closest we can get really but that was super chaotic and Pantoja wasn't approaching that in any sort of smart way they were just kind of doing it doing the thing and I think that's always going to favor Figueredo uh I don't amend my pick slightly I mean I'm still picking Figueredo but uh, I actually, just based on the whole game planning thing, I could see Moreno looking at the Formiga fight and saying, like, okay, it wasn't just, like, the drawing him forward. It was also the um, programming reactions, like uh, the way Formiga was, uh, you know, coming in with his jab or coming in with his one-two or coming in with his lead, his lead two, uh, stuff like that. But showing him with something a couple of times, waiting for Figueroa to pick up the counter and then, like, fainting it or doing something that was layered, like a combination and before you do the second thing, hitting the level change for the, the takedown entry. Problem is, I'm just not ever going to be comfortable with someone having to wrestle Figueredo ever again because of how ridiculous his, uh, his opportunistic and encounter submissions are at this point. Like, that was weird. The guillotine that, that he pulled versus Alex Perez, he didn't have that. When he first got it, he did not have that. And then he finished it. So I'm like, okay. I got to reconsider how I think about this guy's ground game. Like it is, is very different than, than I thought it was. And I think uh, the fact that he is wrestleable a little bit is why he developed his game in that way. And I don't love that decision, 
but it's working. It's working pretty well. Uh, so yeah, this is a cool fight. This, this is a, a card with three, I would say, at least three very interesting fights. And uh, the one that might even be hardest to predict, even though these, these two are already very hard to predict, is uh, Hinata Moikana versus Rafael Faziev. And uh, I'm going to share, I'm going to let you go again, um, since you uh, you love Moikana. <laughs> Well, I mean, you could take it because you love Fiziev. That's also an option. But yeah, I mean, Hanamo Kana versus Rafael Fiziev. Rafael Fiziev. I'm never going to pronounce that right. But it's a, it's a very cool fight. I think there's a lot to look at it in every range. I think it's my first thought is that it's a tough fight for Rafael uh, for Hanada Moikana. Oh my God. For Hanada Moikana. Uh, it's a very tough fight, I think, because the range that he keeps. Yeah, so, so go over uh, Hanada Moikana a little bit because people don't really like he's. People have like the technician idea about him. That's kind of like what's been peddled about after uh, before the Aldo fight and out of the KZ fight that he's kind of a fragile technician. I think a lot of what makes Moicano special is kind of unknown to the general public. Uh, first thing is his jab. He's very good with his jab and his uh, lateral movement on the outside. He's very good at uh, drawing reactions out with it. He doesn't really have a power jab, contrary to what Cub Swanson showed us, but um, he's very good with it. He actually did some cool jab left hook things against Jose Aldo, where he could he either drew it out with like a, a rear hand fade and left hooked him, or jab or left hooked off his jab uh, to play with Aldo's defensive reactions, which is something that not many people can say. But that's one thing. And the other thing is his kicking game. Moicano's um, kicking game is absolutely brilliant. I'd go for go as far as to say it's one of the best in the sport right now, if not the best. Uh, you can look at the Calvin Cater fight for that. Uh, as much as I don't like to revisit it because Calvin Cater is like my favorite fighter in the sport right now. Uh, it was it was a brilliant performance. It was as good as a performance as you could ever find against another elite fighter. Uh, he took away the jab with uh, kicks on the counter. He was able to put duchies together, both to the inside and the outside. Uh, he angles off his kicks so that guys can't just track him off them, which is something that he did against Jeremy Stevens, where he'd knock him into a square stance and walk away as Stevens was squared up. Um, but the issue with that is if you're a kicker on the outside and you're not a power kicker, then Rafael Fuziev is going to outkick you uh, because he's just such a powerful kicker. Uh, he probably just kick. Uh, so first of all, Fiziev's issue, I think, is that he's going to fade down the stretch a little bit. He's not really going to build off things as much as uh, Moicano does. So Fiziev is going to, you know, just throw really, 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 really hard open side kicks at Moicano for as long as he's at range, uh, give Moicano a few opportunities to build off his own things. And I think the issue with Moicano generally is that if you get past his jab and his ring craft, he's not quite as comfortable. If you look at the Ortega fight, there's a lot of points where Moicano's just going like, you know, on his guard. Uh, it's not like, he's not a very good pocket boxer, in my opinion, especially in combination. He, he does them very, he does very long pocket combinations, but mechanically they're kind of gross and defensively he's not really there. Uh, so Fiziev, he's a very good counterpuncher in combination. And we saw against the Korean zombie, how much that could potentially trouble Moicano. Although uh, I guess it's my mandate to say, I don't think Moicano loses that fight again. But Fiziev is a little bit more troubling, I think. A uh, consistent combination counterpuncher who can kick with him on the outside, probably push him back. Um, I don't know if Fiziev will be able to cut him off, but deal some damage at kicking range uh, if Moicano is willing to concede the back foot, which he usually is. So what's going to make me pick Moicano here, as I inevitably will? I think it's that fading thing. Uh, I think Moicano is the smarter fighter who's going to eventually figure out uh, how Jacuzzi and even Alex White fought his way back into the... Uh, uh, Fiziev fight. Fiziev is a pretty decent defensive fighter, but I think as the fight goes on, he kind of decays with that. He kind of goes to a static high guard. I think White got through with like these double left hands several times, which was kind of bizarre. So I think Moicano can figure out a way in a broadly competitive fight, a competitive tough fight for him. I think Moicano can figure out a way to um, 
to work his back through. It really depends on where the pivot is. Because I think it could be, it's very possible that like Fazeev takes the first eight minutes, Moicano fights back and loses a split. It's just as possible that Fazeev fades by like minute seven or Moicano starts figuring things out by minute seven and it just uh, Moicano picks it up. I'm going to go with Moicano, but it's a very tentative pick considering how tough the fight is to start with for Hanato. Ben, do you have a read on this fight? Ben or Dan? I said Ben, but you can go next. Oh. Uh, I actually did think you said Dan. Okay. I'll, I'll just go real quick. Um, I, I, I reserve the right to change my pick since I haven't really taped this one, but um, a lot was coming back to me. I sure I'm spoke there. And yeah, man, I, I it's funny. Fiziev opened uh, just from like a betting perspective as a slight favorite. Um, money has come in on him now where he's like in the minus 150 range. You got the comeback on the underdog, Moicano like plus 130. And I don't hate the opening line and I get money coming in on Fiziev, who I'm currently leaning toward. Maybe it's, you know, he's the cool guy or whatever. Maybe it's the recent, more recency bias. And But it's probably more the fact and another reason why I'll try to keep this short with a big caveat and warning is like, I think we all have our either types or just certain fighters for whatever reason. We cannot read well. We cannot pick well um, or appreciate. And I feel like Moicano is all three of those for me. Um, the kicking stuff I've always respected. I was at that fight live at 223. Cause I wanted to see Tony versus Khabib, uh, but like it was an amazing fight and plenty of people who I respect um, even outside of the show um, have made that comment on his kick. So I'm not disregarding it. Like I'm raising my hand. I'm the one that's probably definitely wrong here, but like, I just, I've never been impressed with the guy and I've always, and I, I don't hate point fighters, but he's always been more of like the point fighter that, that I, I, I don't typically, typically like. Um, I also feel like, more specifically and, and more relevant to our conversation, the scoring that I brought up earlier is something you need to keep in mind. And I feel like the scoring shifting. And even though the judges are overcorrecting, you could argue they're overcorrecting the steering wheel. It's like, okay, I'm glad late takedowns aren't fooling you judges, but like give some advice for give some points for some takedowns and advancements here, you know? And of course, submission attempts, they still will never give a shit about neither here nor there. The point is, um, I, I, unless Moicano is really playing effective and, it, it, you know, if anyone's going to do it in this match or if it's going to end early, I think that's going to be Moicano. Moicano at the, his hand raised if he's able to hit takedowns and go for the submission. But, like, he doesn't – even though he got after against Hadzovic, I like Hadzovic, but, like, I'll be honest, like, Hadzovic's not a great fighter, right? Let's let's be honest here. Um, he doesn't go for the takedowns as consistent, uh, consistently as I like, and I would like to see that from Moicano here. I don't want to see him get into that point game and depend on Fiziev to fall apart late. Um, but for that reason, I could totally see like how, how, how you said, like it's going to be one of those fights where probably go the distance. It'll probably be close. And there'll probably be people that are arguing about it from analysts to gamblers alike. Um, yeah. I, I don't have um, as deep of a read on this as uh, some of the other uh, guys on the site, mostly because I just haven't, taken or had the time i think would be a better way of putting it to watch the tape that i would like to uh before making a in-depth read uh my 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 main concern with with hanato and i actually very much enjoy watching him fight especially when he can get his grappling going um because he's really really good at it uh the hadrick fight doesn't show us anything i don't really know how he's going to look at lightweight um i don't know how he's going to handle the bigger uh, fighters he's going to be facing, the more powerful, the stronger fighters that he's going to be facing. 
a, he's not a physical dude. Like Mokano is just, there's no way you can describe the guy as any sort of physical force uh, at either division. Uh, I would say, uh, hope he proves me wrong, but I don't know. Uh, and Fiziev is, uh, uh, aside from the fact that he's incredibly powerful and, and a very good striker, he's also much more physical than Mikano. He's going to have that physicality advantage, and he's also going to have a durability advantage. And when you're the more physical fighter, but you're not necessarily the more durable fighter, that's something that can be overcome. You can be crafty and set up your shots and try and kind of like cow the person who's more physical than you uh, or vice versa. You can be more durable and less physical and kind of like endure the onslaught. When you lack both of those things, it's going to be really hard for you to, you're going to have to walk up essentially a tightrope. Um, Moicano is definitely going to have the better first level of exchanges. Uh, he's got a really good jab. He's very good at you know, maintaining uh, a long distance. However, once you do get through that, it's going to be problematic for him because he does take some time to kind of get uh, at least down a featherweight. Obviously, we haven't seen anything at lightweight. Uh, that he'll, he'll often take his time and kind of like break you down over time. And against Fiziev, that's actually really good because we've seen Fiziev fade. We've seen him kind of like ha- be more competitive as the rounds go on. Uh, and as that physicality kind of fades a bit. So while that is a good thing, the problem is he's also less durable. Um, what I am curious to see is if we see him push a harder pace than he was able to push at featherweight just because of how much weight he was cutting. So I'm curious if we're going to see Moicano be able to kind of push a pace on Fiziev that kind of forces him to respond. And if his durability is upped by this uh, lack of cut, I do see this being a pretty clean decision for Mikano because I do think he's the far more skilled grappler. Um, his wrestling is pretty good. Uh, it's not fantastic, but it, it is solid. It is, the, it is serviceable, I would say. Um, and I can absolutely see him uh, mixing up the striking and, and wrestling to fluster Fiziev and really open him up both on the feet and to take down. So I, I'm going to pick Mikano by decision just because I feel like I could, from a skill set percent of perspective, I trust him more, but um I always find it hard to pick people with a huge question mark over their durability. And yeah, I'm going to have to pick Makana by decision, but very tentative. Yeah, I think it makes sense. It makes sense to pick Moicano, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> I, uh, I wrote about Fiziev before his UFC debut, uh, pretty comprehensive of everything I could find of him up to that point. I haven't revisited that in a while, so I don't remember everything I found out at that point. And then uh, he got wheel kicked by uh, Mustafa, which sucked for me because I really hyped him up beforehand. I did, I did have a caveat in the article. I was like, he's a slow starter. He could be caught cold. Mustafa kicks really hard. Something could happen. It did. So at least I acknowledge that. But uh, that sucked. But then he's been looking really good lately. And uh, the DKC fight, people really uh, got on board after that. So I'm happy. Uh, same thing happened with me with uh, Hakeem Duwadu. I really hyped him up before his debut. Then he got club and sub by Danny Henry. So embarrassing for both of us. Uh, but he's doing really good now. So uh, we're, we're in business. So uh, sometimes I curse prospects, but it, it comes around. I, the, the skill I recognize is real. Anyway, so I really like Fiziev. I'm going to pick him just because I like him. But I'm going to talk myself into it here. Are you ready? Uh, we, we talked about Moicano's you know, durability a bit. I don't think he's like... Fragile. I think that's a little overstated, but I mean, compared to a lot of the guys he's fighting, he is not as physical or athletic or durable. I mean, like in, in moments, the Korean zombie is like kind of a crazy athlete in certain respects. 
Um, he's just not that good at pushing a certain fight, but like when he gets to plant and counter punch, it's he has absurd power, uh, crazy pop. I mean, that punch he, he knocked out Moicano with was perfect pretty much. Uh, so you can't expect him to compete with that. But Moicano gets a lot of pop on, on his long strikes. Uh, he kicks super hard. Uh, he looks imposing and physical when he's grappling. Um, I think he's much more grappler athlete than striker athlete, despite having a decent amount of speed uh, and, and pop on his strikes. But yeah, he's not like an athlete striker. Uh, Fiziev is an athlete striker, for sure. Uh, that's an explosive guy. That's a heavily muscled guy. He's a hoss. Uh, I have a video of him training a Tiger Muay Thai, just doubling someone across the room and uh, taking her back and just looking really good. Um, I love Tiger Muay Thai. It's one of my favorite camps in the world. I just think they do everything very well, and their guys are all very athletic and physical and uh, well-rounded and dangerous in a lot of respects. And wrestlers run the camp, American wrestlers run the camp. So you have these international guys who come from striking backgrounds, really picking up their wrestling and making huge strides in that regard. Like Peter Yan in the first uh, Magomed Magomedov fight, not much of a wrestler, very active. Uh, he's trying really hard, great effort. I mean, he did a lot off his back. But then the second Magomed Magomedov fight, he looked like a completely different fighter in his wrestling and clinch game at jump levels. And uh, in between that, he uh, he ragdolled Ed, Ed Arthur. He got a British opponent and just threw him around. Uh, and I kind of like Ed Arthur, too, so that was impressive. So I'm I'm putting a lot of faith in Tiger Muay Thai in my pick here because just from what I remember, maybe there's more to it than what I remember. Uh, we don't know that much about Fiziev's uh, defensive grappling or wrestling. There hasn't been anyone who is good at it, that has been trying to do it to him. So I don't really know what to think of it. Um, and Moicano takes people down. He's he's not bad at it. Um, he's been opp opportunistic in a lot of his grappling, but he is capable of taking people down and not just Demir Hasevich. So it's like, if he takes him down, I'm super concerned because I think even if he made a lot of strides, I don't think that's going to go well. Uh, I think it's easily the best part of Moicano's game. Um, I think his debut, he uh, did he submit Tom Ninimaki? who was like, just beat yeah. Hana Yaya, or like he was just coming off a really impressive grappling performance, and then Moicano outgrappled him, and I was like, what is going on? Um, it's hard to understand him. Um, but yeah, I really respect him as a grappler and a kicker, so, and jabber, all those things. Uh, he's a smart fighter, that's why Sharon likes him. He's crafty. He's crafty and athletically limited, that's his type. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, back to my original point that I started with, not, not fragile, but uh, Fiziev is kind of a monster puncher when he uh, finds his opening. It's when the fights get messier and in ranges he's not as comfortable with and, and in spaces he's not as familiar with as things start to get sloppier and make him tired. So I think when he's fighting his fight, he won't get tired. Because I've seen him push ridiculous paces on like Road FC, have some really crazy fights where he sprinted for like three minutes straight. Um, he, he has a, an impressive tank. He's an impressive athlete all around. I think he's still in the stage of his career as an MMA fighter where a lot of things throw him off. And that's when you get tired, right? When you're in unfamiliar territory. So I think a lot of it is like the big gloves to small gloves transition. Like you're saying, the things that Alex White was doing for him, I was like a lot of guard piercing um, and just, you know, kind of being uncomfortable with the type of defense he was um, having to work with. Uh, I, I can't really justify having a hard fight with Alex White. Um, Alex White's kind of big and, and tries really hard and, and has some skills, but that's not really the level of opponent we're looking for with Fiziev, so it's not a great look. He still won, um, and White looked fairly durable, so I think it's a grain of salt. And same with Dukesi, right? He got tired after kicking his ass super hard for two rounds, and he was beating him up really hard, and uh, Dukesi wasn't going away. And I think when you keep landing something hard 
and it's, it's still there. You're like, I'm going to keep hammering this as hard as I possibly can, because why wouldn't I? And that's tiring. Um, so I think, you know, conditional, these, these tiring performances. So I'm going to say further into his career, maybe this fight even, uh, that's not going to be as part of the narrative for Fiziev that he gets tired. Um, I think it's just a, he's still adjusting. It's still the learning curve. Um, and Moikana doesn't really seem like the type to give him the fight to make him tired. I think he's not going to push it super hard. He's going to try to play on the outside, be more tactical and pick his moments more sparingly. And Fiziev likes that. Uh, if you watch his Muay Thai fights, I don't know if they're against anyone good, but it just gives you a sense of what he likes to do in a pure striking context. Um, he's very patient, um, likes to play on the outside, has very, very solid defense from, from mid range, from kicking range. Um, and then just picks his moments to be super explosive, either with like the switch kick or his one, two or his left hook or whatever, just explosive entries. Um, and I think if they spend enough time at that mid-range kickboxing match level, he'll find times to burst in or counter or do whatever. Um, if he chooses to pressure Moikana, which I think would be awesome, I don't really see it happening because he does not a, he's not a super uh, you know, intentional pressure fighter. But if he does become one for this fight, I think that's even better for him uh, because Moikano sometimes likes to throw in bundles in the pocket to scare people off. And like Sherong said, his mechanics are, are pretty ugly at times. He is pretty reckless. Um, and I don't think anyone's like pounded them for it quite yet. But I mean, if anyone's going to get tired doing that, it's Moicano, um, a guy who has faded from a persistent pressure performance before. Um, so I, I would be super concerned for Moicano's health if he was doing that to, to get Fasiev off of him. So I think on the, on the feet is a very dangerous matchup for Moicano. Um, I'm not really sure what the grappling's going to be like. I'm not really sure what the wrestling's going to be like. I think it's definitely possible that Fiziev just has a tough fight and there is wrestling and grappling and he fades anyway. But uh, if, if they're going to strike for most of it, I and Moicano isn't like pressing him, pressuring him or pressing him back, excuse me, I don't see Fiziev fading significantly. But uh, we'll see. I could be wrong and I haven't read my article in a while, so I don't remember the things I know about him. But uh, yeah, I'm picking him. It's mostly me being a fan of him and me talking myself into it. But I think if that's how, if, if it happens, that's how it's going to happen, I think. Um, does anyone have new points after me doing that? <laughs> um, I'll just, oh, yeah, sorry, no, go, go ahead, Tom. No, 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 go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say real quick, I kind of, I think I like that you said physicality because I think that ties in all my picks that I've made in the matches we discussed. I'm definitely taking the more guy with physicality there. Uh, and I feel like that's a great word, you know, the explosiveness, durability, offensive, how much they can give out and take, because it's not a size issue. Like I interviewed Moicano in person in studio and I was blown away with how this one, he was still at 145. I was blown away with how big this guy is. He looks even bigger. Um, the opposite of the previous point Ben made, he looks even bigger in person, right? So it's not an issue of size or length. He's going to have those here, but like that physicality. And even though he's the taller and longer guy, like he's going to have to go into that shorter, more physical frame. And he's really going to have to commit to those. And kind of to Ed's point, not only does he not intentionally come forward physio, but like a lot of these more schooled Muay Thai fighters, they're seldom out of position. And I feel like that's when you can trick Moicano into grappling is like the Jeremy Stevens, where you're getting frustrated, you're coming in hot. Then Moicano will hit the level changes, which is probably why I've always been upset because as a bouncer back to Ben here, that was one of the things like early on, I'm like, dude, this guy was known for his jujitsu. This is what this hype was coming off the regional scene. You know, he debuts with it and we barely see him use it, you know? And like, and again, the, the rest of his game outside of the leg kicking, not too appealing to me. So perhaps I'm missing the boat here, 
but yeah, I just wanted to add that in. Um, yeah, no, it was something I wanted to just build off of, uh, not build off of, but just kind of point out that um, if 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 Ezev doesn't really push a pace, I think that I think that you're. Um, you would be right to say probably the best thing to do would be to push a really heavy pace and kind of like pressure McConnell back, really uh, target the body and kind of like, we've seen that work against him before. Obviously, he could always just blast him out of the water and I mean, he could do that against anyone technically. But uh, if we're going to go for like the technical game plan, uh, it'd probably be to consistent pressure, force McConnell to, into uncomfortable exchanges and attack the body. And if Izzy is not really going to do that, if he's kind of just going to like fence with him at range, that's going to favor Mykano in the long run. And I think that's actually going to really work against him. So if, uh, Ed, what you said is that you don't expect him necessarily to kind of like really force Mykano back and make him uncomfortable, I think that's actually something that makes me a little bit more confident because I know you have a really, really good read generally on Fiziev. So that actually, you've you've accidentally made me more confident in my Mykano pick. And I do appreciate that because I trust your judgment. Yeah. <laughs> that was not my intention. Yeah. Yeah, that's a cool fight. It's a very cool fight. They're all cool fights. So we talked about Oliveira Ferguson, uh, Moreno, and Figueredo, and now Moicano and Fasiev. And we talked for a really long time. So I think it's time to end it. Um, everyone can be found on Twitter. Uh, we have Dan Tom, who is at Dan Tom MMA. We have Ben, who is Agent Ben 10. I don't know if you watch cartoons, but Ben 10 is a very cool superhero. And uh, Sriram, who is uh, Sriram M says, is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, this will come out tomorrow for us, which is Wednesday. Um, and then we'll have the staff picks article, which will feature more analysts, more varied opinions on the same fights, I believe, the same three fights. Um, but featuring picks by uh, former Bellator world champion and USC contender and brave uh, CF contender, Zach Mikowski. So that's going to be pretty cool to have him on our staff picks article for the first time. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty hyped for that. Uh, but yeah, check that out. Check out the fight site. And uh, yeah, hope to have everyone back for another panel soon. And we're just going to keep abusing Dan Tom and not paying him for these appearances. All right. Goodbye. It's the end. It's the end of the recording. <laughs>